Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host, Ronnie Nathan, and we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. And by the way, if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars with some comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us in the rankings. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Okay. So part of what we're doing here is cutting through the assumptions many of us bring into conversations like the ones we've been having. For example, many of my friends might jump to the conclusion that if some, someone's a Christian, well, they must be a big Trump supporter. Other friends might jump to the conclusion that if someone's an academic and a scholar, well, they're probably one of those godless liberals. But today's guest shatters many of those assumptions, or should I say he's really good at shattering paradigms. Please welcome our esteemed guest, Dr. George Yancey. George is a sociologist and professor at the Institute for Studies of Religion and Sociology at Baylor University, having done graduate work in economics and received his PhD in sociology from UT Austin. Hook him horns. <laughs> horns. Yeah. He's also a prolific author of many books, including some of his more recent contributions, So Many Christians, So Few Lions Dealing with Christianophobia. Oh, I meant to ask you, is that Christianophobia or Christianophobia? Uh, I think Christianophobia. Yeah, Christianophobia. Well, say it. Yeah. Transcending racial barriers and compromising scholarship on religious and political bias in American higher education. Among many other books, you are truly prolific. And you can also have your paradigm shattered on the aptly called Shattering Paradigms, his blog on Patheos. Um, first of all, thank you for joining us. This is it's a real honor. How are you doing, George? Pretty good. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. How are you doing, Pop? Thriving. Thriving. Excellent. Well, we'll dive right in. So all of your education and, and most of your work has been in Texas. Is that where you were born and grew up? No, actually, I grew up in California. Oh, we're in California. Uh, yeah. San Diego area. Uh, okay. We moved around the San Diego area. So yeah, I didn't come to Texas until high school. Oh, wow. So not too far from my neck of the woods as a kid. Where was that? We're north of Los Angeles in Santa Clarita Valley. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So what drew you initially to economics and then to sociology? You know, I don't know. I took an economics course as an undergrad. I'm a first-generation uh, graduate student. No one in my family had gotten a, a degree before, much less a doctorate. So I thought economics kind of cool. It's about money and stuff. So I took a couple courses, found them pretty good. And so I went on and got my degree from there. So... So yeah, yeah, I wish I could say I had some sort of master plan. You know, I really thought through, but I really didn't. It's just, I took courses. I think a lot of colleges, especially first generation, this happens. You don't really know about what college is about. And so you take a couple courses and you like those and you say, well, this is what I'm supposed to major in. And so that's how I went up with an economics degree. What about the 
What about the draw to sociology? That one was, you know, I, uh, when I went on to grad school, I said, well, I have an economics degree as an undergrad. I'll get an economics degree as a grad. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So, but I took, uh, uh, in, in my program, I got to take a couple of courses outside my, my field. And I was interested in dynamics of the family. I was a Christian at the time. And those things were really interesting to me. So there's a sociology of the family course that I took that uh, I found very fascinating. Were you raised as a Christian, George? I was, but I didn't really become one until I was 19. What, what, what drew you to that decision? You know, it was just one of those things. I, I grew up in the church, but I really didn't understand what it meant to follow Jesus. And uh, I was at a dry point in my life when I was really searching. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they become Christians, they have someone lead them to the Lord. I had a lot of people teaching me, but no one led me to the Lord. It was sort of, I went off and I'd start doing walks uh, around and just start thinking about, uh, have I really given my life to the Lord? And, and I realized I had not. And so this happened when I was a sophomore in college. And, and soon after I, I, you know, really opened myself up, you know, praying to God, God, if you're there, please guide me, show me, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for you. Uh, I felt that he guided me to this ministry on campus. And then I was really taught. Then I was really uh, discipled, as we like to say. And so that really helped me out. So, yeah, that didn't happen. I don't feel like I became a Christian until I was a sophomore in college. Even though I grew up going to church, if you're a black and you're at that time of, of our history, you grew up, you went to church whether you wanted to or not. You know, it was, it was something that it was expected. It's what you're going to do. Uh, but I don't think I really was a Christian growing up. Interesting. And now, at the intersection of your vocation and avocational endeavors, seems to be your work in multiracial churches, which I've heard you talk about quite a bit. And I feel completely ignorant even asking you to tell us more about multiracial churches. But what is the nature of your work in this area, and, and how's it going? Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I really haven't been doing a lot of study of multiracial churches lately, but that was around the turn of the, uh, yeah, about 2000. Uh, I'm, I'm showing how old I am, about 1999, 2000 or so, was when I, I got a chance to do a really big grant on that. And, and honestly, at the time, it was, you know, I was grappling with the question, how do Christians, how can Christians of different race worship together? And it may seem like a silly question today, although it may not be as silly as it should be, but even 20 years ago, you know, yeah, black churches, white churches, Hispanic churches, they don't worship together very much. I want to know what happened that allowed them to worship together. Now, I think this question though has ramifications beyond just, hey, isn't it interesting if Christians are different to work together? Uh, you know, because I think it has implications as to how we can get along with different races. Because church is voluntary. You go to school with people of different races, you gotta go to school. You gotta, you gotta get a job. And so if your job has people of different races, you gotta, you gotta work there anyway. But you don't have to go to church or synagogue or, or anything like that. And so when you choose to go to a multiracial church and choose to remain in a multiracial church, questions as to why you chose and remain there, I think are very valuable to thinking about how we can deal with racial issues where people volitionally will work together rather than snipe at one another. So I felt like it had very important, you know, I, th I think it helped to address very important questions. And I still use that research as I think about racial issues today. Uh, and so, but I've not really done any research on multiracial churches in about 15 years. 
but that it, I forgot the name of the empirical work that you relied upon for some of the work that you're doing now. Um, gosh, I wish I remembered it off the top of my head, but it, it, it's like what, contact, what, contact theory. Yeah. An inner contact hypothesis. Yes. Okay. Contact hypothesis. So right, it sounds yeah. like it's in that realm. The you're, It is. It is. Okay. Yeah. I won't, I won't nerd you all out with going on to the details. Nerd away, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. But it's about the contact hypothesis. It's about, you know, contact under the right conditions and how that can foster better race relations. Uh, and I argued that churches were the type of venue that had the right conditions, as opposed to neighborhoods or educational settings or things of this nature. And so that's kind of what drove me eventually towards wanting to study multiracial churches. So, so what are the conditions that foster positive interracial interactions? By yeah. the way, Dad, t t share with George your vocational background, because there's a lot of overlap some, some of what George is working on right now in response to racial reconciliation um, and, and justice uh, his, his prescription preferred from what I've I, I understand overlaps a lot with your work uh, when you were in inner city schools in New York share with uh, George what what you were doing I was a graduate student in medieval economic history in a PhD program and lost my student deferment. And uh, this was in, 19, um, in March of 1968. And um, I was, if I didn't find a way to get out of the war, I was going to be in Vietnam within six months. And uh, I ended up in teaching just because that got me out of the war. Um, I ended up in inner city schools that were mostly black and Latino. And uh, I became a guidance counselor because it was the easiest master's degree, degree to get. It was only a 30 credit master's and we were married and my wife was pregnant and we didn't have a lot of money. And I had to get a master's quick to certify my teaching credentials. And being a high school guidance counselor seemed like a pretty good vet, you know, pretty good road to take. And I spent 37 years in the New York City school system, working mostly with black and Latino kids. And I learned a couple of very important things that it didn't matter how tall you are. It didn't matter what the color of your skin was. High school kids figure you out in about a minute and a half. And nothing matters except whether you are perceived as someone who cares about them and has standards for them, or if they perceive you as something else, something less. And I was fortunate because I did pretty well, <laughs> and I loved it. Well, you, you went a very different way than I thought you'd go with that. I thought you were going to talk about your crisis resolution. Well, work. I mean, what happened was very quickly, I started, I found that I enjoyed working with the at-risk kids much more than with the kids who were highly motivated and doing well in school, and just by virtue of my own interest and proclivity, I was identified as somebody who did pretty well with, with tough kids. And um, as a result of that, I got into conflict resolution in an academic way, and I became a certified mediator and had to teach conflict resolution, and I ended up becoming um, 
for a high school district, I was the crisis response coordinator in the 80s, because once crack hit the streets, the high schools in New York City became very, very, very violent. And I led a crisis response team uh, for about five years that went into schools after murders and gang conflicts and race conflicts and all that kind of stuff. And um, after we stabilized the school, um, we would stay for several weeks and train the staff on skills like active listening and how to set up a peer mediation program and um, how to um, how to bring the kids into the school community who didn't normally come into the school community, but rebelled against the school community. Um, so that's my background. But I've been retired for 15 years now. So that, that's kind of what I was leading to, Georgia. You've done a great deal of work um, with a, a strong scientific grounding on mutual do I have this right? Mutual responsibility or mutual accountability? Oh, let's call it mutual accountability. Yeah. Uh, based on what I was, that's, that's where I, I, I had the note on it. Empirical work on the theory of contact hypothesis. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, involves simple but difficult acts of active listening and seeking win-win rather than win-lose. I just wanted to open that up for you and, and tell us more about that work. Yeah, I mean... Honestly, the empirical work on the effectiveness of active listening, I've not done anything on, on yet. I'm looking at trying to do that. I'm building it based on what other people have done. I have done some work on interracial contact, uh, you know, through multiracial churches and interracial families. So that work I have done. Uh, but in theory, and based on what the research says, one of the ways out of our racial mess is to engage in, you know, What's, what I think has been called collaborative conversations, uh, that we have conversations with purpose, with intent, uh, and, and that we work towards a solution by working together. And of course, active listening is a big part of that. Also learning how to talk with folks. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, brag or anything like that, but I think I'm a fairly effective speaker when, I, when I'm a bunch of, in front of a bunch of white folks as opposed to you know, a, a black anti-racist expert because I know kind of from having listened to them what's important to them. And so I know, I know, I know if I say certain things, it, it turns off. People are already are not on my team. So, you know, you learn these things when you engage folks. <clears throat> and so my argument is that, uh, you know, I, I'm still fine. I am working on a book on this. Uh, there's three, there's really two major ways people are approaching how to deal with racial issues today. <clears throat> there's the anti-racism, you know, the D'Angelo, white fragility, the, the, the Kinty, you know, how to be anti-racist, you know, you know, I, I remember stop talking to, to white folks, you know, that sort of stuff. There's, there's that field. And then there's the others who say, let's ignore race. You know, let's be colorblind to race. Race don't, race, you know, we've, we've solved the problem. Why are we bringing up race? And People think that those are the only two options we have. I'm saying, no, no, there's another option. And that option is collaborative conversation where we don't preordain answers ahead of time, but rather we work to find our answers together that are more win-win solutions. And so that's, a, that's the, uh, the angle, the uh, process that I'm pushing right now. Because I think that that, is, that has a great deal of fruit. It's not been done nearly as much as the other other two angles, which we know have failed. 
And so, you know, if you have two ways that have already failed, why not try the third way that might succeed, which some research suggests would succeed. Uh, and so that's been a, a big push that I've been starting to work on. But hopefully in another year or two, if you come back to me again, I'll, I'll have some actual research. Interesting. Because I don't think there's any research that applies this to racial issues specifically. And that's what I need. That's what I need to do. The, the lack of research or maybe the lack of empirical grounding, if, if I understand it correctly, is where your concern is with, uh, you mentioned Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. Is, yes. that, is that where your concern is or is it something else? Well, I mean, all right. Uh, for me, my belief is as a Christian, the good theology and good science will go together. So yeah, I do care about the science, but theologically, I just find her approach to not fit in with what I think is the way. I don't think it fits in with the nature of humans. It's not the nature of humans for one group, even a group that has been abused historically. So I don't want anyone here and say, oh, you know, you don't, you don't even know your history. Folks, I'm a race scholar, okay? Don't, don't go around saying, I don't know what I'm talking about as far as I know about the history of race. I know a lot about race. You know, I, I've written books on that, I teach classes on it. I know about our history, all right? I mean, I'm not a historian, but I know a lot about our history. But even when we have that history, you don't solve problems by telling the people who have historically been perpetrators, okay, you guys don't, don't say anything anymore. You guys don't have a place to talk. Mm. Just listen and do what they say. The nature of humans, from my faith tradition, Human depravity, I think, has born, been borne out in what happens when you do situations like that. And when you do situations like that, and the research now comes in and shows, you know, you get resentment, you, uh, you, you actually have, are less effective in creating changes in your institutions. It is uh, not the way to go. Yeah. And so, yeah, the empirical, the lack of empirical support is troubling, but it's not the, I, I think the whole philosophy of, my fragility is quite troubling as well. Yeah, no, I could attest to that. I I run, uh, an, I'm involved in a nonprofit that's helping out folks who've been hit especially hard by the pandemic and the economic fallout. And after George Floyd was killed, the folks uh, on that that are involved in the organization felt really compelled to number one examine the degree to which we needed to we needed to train we needed to get some diversity, equity, inclusion training, but also to reach out to the rest of our industry, our community, and say, in what ways can we be supporting other efforts? Uh, so one, one conversation, this is just one story. It's not scientific, but it's just my, my experience to, to affirm your point. Um, there's uh, one gal who really passionate about this stuff, seemed to be taking a, leading the charge. So I reached out to her and I, I asked, um, hey, you know, I, I've heard through the grapevine that you're you're taking the lead on this thing. Would you be willing to lead a conversation in our organization about how we can be more diverse and inclusive and how we can help other folks in the community? I'll tell you what, if I read the email that I got back, we went back and forth a couple of times, but the last email was, um, you know, you really should be more aware of your white male privilege and you need to just <laughs> shut up. You need to just be quiet. You need to do more listening. And uh, th there were some really like charged um, attacks uh, that I need to shut up and I need to understand, you know, my place in this whole thing. Oh, and the, it, it was, why are you trying to take over the conversation? 
And I was just befuddled. Like, how did me reaching out and saying, hey, would you be willing to lead a conversation turn into me trying to take over a conversation? And this is the confession is that in that in the midst of that, part of my response was leaning towards, you know what? I tap out. I, I'm obviously doing more harm than good. I'm also really upset about basically the name calling um, that uh, I just, I don't want to be a part of it. Um, you know, I ultimately came around to <laughs> the notion that somebody might be involved in very worthy causes, but could still be a complete butthole. <laughs> and this person was just showing her butt. So we, we have found ways to be a productive part of that conversation. But to your point, when that first happened, man, I just wanted to tap out. So what, what, what I find, what I found in my experience, two things were crucial in being able to go into a place that had just experienced a race riot or a gang war with extreme violence. And this little middle-aged Jewish white guy comes in and he's going to mediate the dispute. Um, the first skill is to learn that nothing anyone says to you that doesn't know you really well is personal. Mm. It's not about me. It's more about the person who's expressing that level of anger. Yeah. And once you put that in your head, it changes the dynamic and chemistry. Now I'm not being defensive. Now I'm listening. And my question is, well, you don't know me. Tell me why you feel that way. Mm. No, you're right. I, I was taking it very personally at that point. The, sec the, the, the second thing that relates to what George was talking about that became very, very, very important in my work was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Because as long as I learned that um, construct and used it in my mediations, instead of talking about, well, I need my own table in the cafeteria, I would talk about, so in other words, you need to have a place that you feel secure and safe in. Once you jump that divide from specific concrete material things people are saying they need and, and, and transform it into a universal human need, every human being needs to feel secure and safe. Every human being needs to have a sense of belonging. Every human being needs to feel respected. That's something, and once you get people to understand that they share those needs, then we can be, begin to talk about, well, how can we fulfill, how can we fill those needs on both sides? We're not competing for the same things anymore. We're together searching for the same things. A, lo a lot of that seems to overlap with uh, several of the articles that I read uh, over the last four or five months of yours, George. You know, one of the things, and I think this is going to apply, uh, you know, uh, as far as uh, what I'm doing today, you know, we're talking about multiracial churches. Uh, one thing multiracial churches had to do, when you join a multiracial church, you bring your culture. I bring an African-American culture into that church. I had to learn what was needed and what was wanted. Because when I'm, when I'm dealing with whites and Asians and Hispanics, we're trying to find compromise you know, I can give you what I need. I cannot give that up, but I can give up what I only want. And I think that 
actually in, in, in engaging in conversations, uh, of course, I'm going to get everything. You know, if you're married, you want to get everything. You know, you, you want your wife to do everything you want, you know. But then reality is slapped you in the face and you realize you, if you ask for that, you're going to be sitting on the couch. So, you know, you, you, you begin to learn, okay, this is very important for, for me. This, I can, I can live without, you know. Uh, I must confess, when I got married, you know, I hated the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> I learned to give up that hate. I learned that it was not something I needed. I, I, I did want it. I did love it. But I learned something because, you know, I just don't, that's not the hill I'm going to die on, you know? Uh, but, I mean, seriously, I think that one of the problems when you have people who say, look, you know, you got you to kind of capitulate to me 100% is that they never figure out what they really need. Because if you can get everything, why not get, why not get everything? And, why, and you don't have to prioritize right. what, you need, what you're willing to give up and what you can get back from the other person. That's missing in our discussion on race today. It really is. And you could turn on Fox or CNN or MSNBC or ABC or any of those and listen to discussion on race. No one's talking about, look, you know, I really wouldn't want this. But if you're willing to give up this, I could... We could horse trade. No one talks like that anymore. Yeah. It's always, you're responsible. You're at fault. Your problem. You're causing this. And that's not going to get us anywhere. Yeah. It's an either or equation um, and, and a zero sum game type of an equation, it seems like. I've been having conversations recently about um, the nuanced difference between compromise versus collaboration. And I, I prefer collaboration. I think there's always an opportunity for collaboration, you know, like in uh, improv. It's the yes and theory, <laughs> yeah. you know, as soon as you say, no, I'm not, then the improvisation's over, you know, but um, yes. And you can build on what that other person, where that other person's coming from. So there's a, there's a ton more to get to. Um, I, one of the things I really wanted to ask you about was Christianophobia. Okay. Um, can you describe what that is and how it manifests itself even today? Sure. You know, I mean, the best definition, if you want to think about Islamophobia or anything like that, it's just an unreasonable hatred or fear of this religious group, and this has to be Christians. And globally, it's Christians however you want to find it. In the United States, it tends to be more conservative Christians. Uh, and so, so that, that is the deal. Uh, one way to man, one, I mean, there's, there's a lot of examples. There's research showing that uh, conservative Christians are more likely to be discriminated against in academia, you know, and there's been some, you know, the media is more likely if, if a certain Christian is attacked physically, the media is more likely to talk about gun control rather than not, this is a hate crime, whereas if it was a Muslim, they'll talk about hate crime, you know, things like this. But to me, the, the best uh, <clears throat> illustration, or well, maybe not the best, but a good illustration of Christianophobia is religious tests. And, you know, we just had a presidential uh, election and the vice president candidate, uh, vice president elect now, uh, has been guilty of this. Uh, most, you know, about half of the people who ran for the highest office, not, not Biden. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not saying Biden's guilty of this. But uh, half the people, Booker and, uh, and Harris and uh, the old guy, <laughs> Social standards, yeah. Uh, you know, they were guilty of this, where they had a candidate uh, in a committee, and they didn't. They didn't ask them how did you act as far as in your role. They didn't ask them, you know, what you believe politically. 
if you ask them theological beliefs, for example, do you believe homosexuality is wrong? Do you believe Muslims are going to hell? Do you now, you know, you could feel, you could agree, disagree, whatever. My question is, our theological beliefs should not be brought up when you're going for a judgeship or you're going for an administrative office. The same people talk about separation of church, church and state were silent. Mm. You know, is a church doing something, we're going to come in and we're going we're gonna to regulate you. But if people are going to discriminate you for your theological beliefs, and I'm emphasizing theological beliefs, yeah. not political beliefs, because that's politics and, you know, that is what it is. It wasn't that they were pro-life politically, in other words. It was that they believed that homosexuality is a sin or that, you know, or what have you. Right. Uh, and, and to illustrate that this is Christianophobia, not just anti-religious bias. I can't think of a time in the past, say, 10 years where a Muslim was asked about their theological beliefs by a political leader in order to get a job as a judge or as an administrator or anything like that. And I think if that happened, that, that would make it national news. I, I, I need to disagree with you. I mean... Has it happened? Well, I don't know. What, what, I mean, look... There hasn't been any Muslims brought to the Senate to be confirmed for SCOTUS yet, but certainly. Well, this, this wasn't just SCOTUS. This, this, this was very a, a variety of different. I was, I'm not just talking about Supreme Court. I'm talking about a lot of judgments. Mu Muslim politicians are regularly um, criticized because we're afraid that they advocate for Sharia law. True. They're going to bring Sharia law into America. And I mean, the, you know, so. I, I'm not denying Islamophobia. I'm not, I'm not denying Islamophobia. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that doesn't happen. And that happens to Christians too. What I'm saying is a front of a committee to have someone who is a, who's a senator say, your theology is why I can't vote for you. I'm not seeing that. And to me, that, 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 that's a different thing than people out there criticizing you for your beliefs. Because that is an official act. And we're not supposed to, you're not supposed to be punished for your theological beliefs on official acts. When it comes to politics, you know, you could not vote for someone because they like the Philadelphia Eagles. My wife wouldn't, so I'm gonna let you know. <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles, she's not voting for you. But when it comes to official hearing, to me, that's that's that that takes it up to a new level. Is it fair to ask uh, Barrett whether her theological opinion about abortion will impact her legal decisions. Is that a fair question to ask? I think it's fair to ask her, how, you know, and of course she's going to answer, she's not going to answer it, but yeah. I think it's fair to ask her, you know, what, what is your position on abortion? You know, and if she, if she says, you know, I'm likely to rule, then you can, but I don't think it's fair to say, what's your theological beliefs? Because then you're getting into, is abortion a sin? Da -da -da, da -da -da. Yeah. And let's be honest, all of our theological beliefs affect how we think. Even the atheist has a theological belief. Right. It affects how he or she thinks. So, you know, why is it only Christians have to justify their theological beliefs? I've heard you admit that you're a critic of Christian anti-intellectualism. Uh, along those... <laughs> along See, this those is why I, I just don't get... I, I don't get an audience because I, I piss everyone off. <laughs> you do. Good job. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a good day if you've pissed people off yeah. on all sides. So... Um, but along those lines, I, 
cynics might push back on on this on a surface level understanding of Christianophobia and say there is no war on Christmas, you know, and that's yeah, to I don't be, bring up war on Christmas. Yeah, just like a memeified yeah. version of the real issue. Yeah, I I I, I don't bring it. The only thing I'll ever say about that is, you know, if someone makes a big deal out of me saying Merry Christmas, I'm like, dude, come on. Relax. You know, <laughs> yeah, let's let, let's live and let live. Yeah. But if you tell me happy holidays, I'd say thank you. Yeah. You know? Only here's my only thing on war on Christmas. Do not celebrate Christmas before Thanksgiving. Oh, come on, folks. <laughs> let's do Thanksgiving first. That gets that and that. I mean, funny, but that actually irritates me more than the whole War on Christmas stuff. I, I really think you should do Thanksgiving at Christmas. You have to wait until at least the pumpkins are all caved in and start to get those flies. At yeah, least come on, time, man. Right? Thanksgiving, be gratitude. Exactly. You know, I'll do Christmas, but let's wait until after Thanksgiving. I, I used to do Black Friday, then I got kids, and then that went out the window. Oh, uh, yeah. How old are your kids? Oh, five, three, and two. Oh, I'll be praying for yeah, you. Yeah, now, now you know why I don't do Black Friday. <laughs> In twelve in, in twelve years, we'll all be praying for you. Yeah, so my, mine are nineteen right now. I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> nineteen, seventeen, and fifteen are mine. So uh, I, I have, I can't believe how stupid I've become as my kids have gotten uh, further into teenage years. Um, I was first introduced to your work in uh, the fir- the first time I saw it was in the collection of essays that Ronald J. Sider and Bandy X Lee put together called "The Spiritual Danger of Donald Trump." Um, in that essay, you acknowledge that many evangelicals see Trump as someone who will save them from Christianophobia. But you also say that what Trump can do is make the situ- situation worse by turning the culture against us further. Do you think that's happened? Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I do. Hmm. Unfortunately, I do. I think you look at a lot of the younger and evangelicals of color and how they've left, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think the damage was done in 2016. I, I am appreciative that he's not going to be my, my president very much longer. Mm. Uh, but the damage largely has been done. I was, was I happy to see that his support among evangelicals fell and that probably led to him losing? Yeah. You know, among many other factors. Uh, because some of the states were so close that if they had voted him, voted for him at the race they did in 2016, he, he might have been able to swing Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, yeah. you know, some of those other states. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, and the only thing I think we can do is rebuild. You know, I think we have to figure out a way to rebuild because I think that he's done a lot of damage culturally. Uh, and a lot of Christians, unfortunately, were very short-sighted. As a religious person who takes God seriously every single day I'm alive, if I meet somebody in my personal life, who is constantly um, evoking hatred, who has a strategy of dealing with people by humiliating them if they don't uh, feed into their own ego, if they lie. I really don't care if you give money to my synagogue and support Israel and uh, believe in all of the things I believe in politically. If you humiliate people and evoke hatred and lie, there's nothing else to talk about. You know, I'm a religious person. I I believe in these values and I can't fathom how any religious person can support a personality like Donald Trump, even if he's against abortion or pretends to be against abortion. 
even if he appoints conservative justices, that doesn't trump the fact that he's a despicable human being in, in, in a sinful way. Well, I, I, have, um, I have a sociological and, and a theological question about that. One of the other really potent points you make in that, in that same essay is the comparison you cite between the Israelites at the end of the time of Judges when they pleaded for a king like other nations have, have kings. Or uh, You said the idea was that a king could fight for them. And I, yeah, as someone who's been ensconced in the world of marketing, it, it seems to me one of Trump's most effective campaign themes was he'll fight for us. And I don't know if you're like me, but that's what, you know, I hear again and again from my friends from church yeah. who, yeah. you know, that, that that's how they describe their reasoning for, for their support of Trump. So my question, sociologically and, and perhaps theologically, why do you think it's so difficult to make those connections? Here, here's the thing about Trump, and I've tried to be as uh, open to why people would support him as possible. Okay, so I've, I've tried, you know, I I was a never Trumper from the day he went down that escalator, I remained a never Trumper. I always told people, look, you know, if you show me that the Democrats are running Hitler, I'll vote for Trump. Short of that, um, you know, that's not that's not happening. So I've so just just to let you know, you know, not a fan of Trump, but I try to understand where people are coming from. And so I think the I think the thing about Trump, and, and as sociologists, I find this interesting is, you know, Trump, the rise of Trump really met or really was in response to very real needs people had. I think some people on the left have a hard time with that. Uh, they have a hard time recognizing that these needs are real, but they weren't real. And yeah. they still are real, because I don't think Trump was the answer to those needs. But in some ways, and I can't completely figure out totally how, other than I think that he is uh, has an ability to inspire great love and great hatred. You know, uh, and politically that is an ability. Uh, Somehow he was able to touch on those needs and people responded to it. Uh, I think it was a fool's errand. I think that, you know, uh, there were better ways to, to address those issues. If some good is gonna come from this, it is going to be that perhaps people will try to meet those needs in, in, in a better way. Uh, but, you know, that's the best I can say. You know, I'm, I'll be happy in, in a couple of months when He's no longer our president. And, and I'm going to disagree with Biden on a lot of stuff, all right? I'm going to disagree with him on a lot of stuff. But, you know, I just look at him and go, he's just a typical president. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to like him someday. I'm going to hate him some days. But he's just a typical president. He's a, he's a politician. He lies some. He obfuscates some. He'll do some things right. He'll do some things wrong. But, you know, he's not, he's not, Trump was just something that's that was very unique and and very problematic. Yeah. And raising three boys in an era of Trump is also something that I'm glad that I had to stop doing come January 20th. Okay. <laughs> I, I heard you say in an interview uh, from 2018 that if Trump had a bad presidency, evangelicals who oppose him, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting loosely here, would be less marginalized within the evangelical community. So w- what's your assessment of his presidency and of the degree to which folks like us will be marginalized going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be some of that, but honestly, I think as we get further away from his presidency, is people are going to look back and see, you know, sort of like, sort of like, you know, I think it's going to be a reverse Ronald Reagan effect. You talk to people on the left, during Ronald Reagan's administration, he was horrible. 
LeBron, you know, he wasn't that bad. You know, he did some good things. Right. I need some reverse Trump effect. Whereas right now, if you talk to certain evangelicals, you know, they're, you know, they're distraught that he's lost. And, and you know, he's protected them and, and all this sort of stuff. But I think as you get further away and they see some of the effects of Trump, I think that that's going to fade. And then, you know, I honestly think that people like myself, not that I'm anything special, but people who, who call the siren about this is problematic are going to have more of a say in a few years. But right now, yeah, I think that it's going to be problematic uh, because people are still holding on to the dream of Trump. But, you know, and one of the things I, <clears throat> I put on Facebook a little while ago is, and I put this four years ago too, you know, when your president loses, it's almost like a loss in the family. It's almost like a death in the family. And people are mourning right now. And we got to give people a, a little space to mourn. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going through the stages of shock and denial. And, and so I really have not criticized people who are trying to find some way that he could, he could still win. I know it's not going to happen. And that's fine. I know people have to sort of do that. People were doing that four years ago with, with Hillary Clinton, too, by the way. Yeah. So I don't want to, you know, yeah, at some point they have to live reality. But, you know, it's only been a week. And so I'm not watching. You got to come and live reality right now. You know, you got to let people process things. And then hopefully as they process stuff and get further away, then they can see some of the, some of the problems Trump caused as well. And, and then maybe we can chart a, a different path. That'd be interesting if, um, as a country, we instituted uh, a week-long sitting shiva, and then you have to go to Kaddish for a year, yeah. and, you know, as part of the mourning process. <laughs> for some people, yeah. First, I would like to get Trump uh, to have a bris. <laughs> Stop. I would like to circumcise him. That's a big picture in my head that I really didn't need. <laughs> Um, well, I, I'd, I'd like to do a little digging on the current political climate uh, and, and would love to hear your thoughts as a sociologist, again, on the problem of the larger problem of polarization, whether it yeah. exists, to what extent, why it exists and seems to be getting worse. Um, and what are some of the major con- contributing factors? Yeah, I mean, I think the polarization is problematic. I'm not going to say it's the worst it's ever been because we had a civil war here. Yeah. You know, so, you know, like I said, this is the worst we ever had. Well, we're not we're not shooting at each other, at least not yet. So, uh, but it is really bad. I'll illustrate why this is problematic, and that's the whole COVID thing. It it, it boggles my mind. You know, I'm looking at the the literature as best as I can. I'm not a you know uh, epistemologist, but I understand science to some degree. And it appears that the best approach towards dealing with COVID is to mask up, social distance, but not necessarily shut down. Shutdowns haven't been working. Masking up, social distancing, stuff in big crowds, that works. Or that at least controls it. So what do we get? If you're a conservative, you don't want any mask. If you're a liberal, you want to shut down. Now, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but the, the sort of political correlation to how we solve the problem is distressing because ultimately this is a medical problem. And we should, as a, as a society be jumping the board to find the best medical solutions. But even this gets politicized. Even now, you know, uh, you know, if you wear a mask, you, I don't know, I guess you don't have faith in, in whatever. Or if you're not willing to shut down, you want, you want to see grandma die. Mm. You know, I mean, we, we talk about this in moralistic terms. 
instead of how do we solve this problem? And that's because we're so polarized. We even use this to get one over on each other. How can we solve problems this way? You know, if we, if we have to take everything into a fight, how do we solve problems? And, and, and that's, you know, I, I don't know an easy way out of it. Yeah, there's, there, I don't think there's an easy way, but I think if more of us have conversations just like these, where we have space for someone to be an academic and a conservative Christian, where we have space for somebody to be a conservative Christian and opposed to Trump. You know, th these, are, these are ingredients that don't often go together in the same person. Um, and, and then just in this conversation, you know, the all the different ingredients that are represented, I, I think that is one little step. Uh, Ravi Zacharias used to tell this story about, um, he, he, I don't know if, he, I heard you talking about apologetics. He's my go-to. Yeah, I know about Ron. Yeah, yeah. He, told, he used to tell the story about um, salt gran granules um, in, in a shaker. Um, and they, he, he kind of personified, or how do, what, do you, what do you call it when you vest them with like personhood? Uh, he was talking about them as characters. One granule said, oh man, you, every time they shake, a bunch of our friends get shaken out and they, they never come back. They're, they're gone. You know, I'm not telling this story great. Robbie used to tell it really, really well. And he, he, and then there was this one old granule who just knew exactly what was going on. He said he, he was totally fine with it. He wasn't freaking out about it. And he said, uh, you know, the young, the young salt granule said, they're going to shake us out. And, and it looks like we're going into that pot of soup or something. And we'll, we'll, we're never coming back. We're never coming back. The old granule said to him, yeah, they might shake me out. Um, I might, I might be gone as you know me, but I'll tell you what, that soup will never be the same. <laughs> you know, that one little granule can, can season the soup just a little bit. And I, I say that because I think little conversations like these, you know, we're, we're salting the soup just a little bit, you know, we're seasoning the soup just a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah, I have thought that my ideas about race could apply to politics, you know, that we need collaborative conversations in politics as well. Uh, I'm actually less hopeful of that than I am on the racial end. Because I actually think in our society today, we are more divided by race, by politics than we are by race. And whereas 20 years ago, I was talking about multiracial churches. I wonder how many churches we have that are multi-political, where you have, you know, Trump conservatives and, 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 and AOC liberals in the same church. Yeah. I bet you there's not a lot of them. You know, that's interesting. I have this very amateur theory that there is a much more acceptable form of prejudice, and it's a certain prejudice. And that is, if I know that you vote Democrat, um, it is now acceptable for me to jump to all kinds of other conclusions about you or vice versa. Yeah. And then to also have a certain level of hatred for you if I don't happen to line up with what I'm assuming all of those other traits are. Yeah. Can I circle back to, because I'm, I'm about to leave. I want to circle back to where I started. I, I go to Chabad, which is an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic kind of approach to Judaism. My best friend in California is an extreme supporter of Donald Trump. Um, he's a doctor, retired doctor, brilliant man. Uh, and when we sit down and talk to each other, about specific issues like healthcare, we usually are able to agree with each other as long as we leave 
politics out of it and just talk about healthcare as a plumbing issue, the way a plumber would approach uh, a stuffed toilet. Well, I have to do X, Y, and Z, or I could do A, B, and C. And we literally love each other and agree with each other about most practical, pragmatic, concrete, specific approaches to problems. I think that's a better way of interacting with people where you have theoretical disagreements, but let's talk about how you're going to fix that point, that toilet. It's been, it's been a pleasure, George. I, I have to run. Pleasure being you, Ronald. Blessings to you. Not so much pleasurable with my son, but it's been a pleasure. I'm teasing. <laughs> All right. Send my love to mom. I will. All right. Um, so that affirms a lot of the work that, that you've been doing, George, in terms of win, 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 as opposed to win, lose. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and humanizing the individuals that, that you're in relationship with or in conversation with a- active listening, really understanding where the person's coming from. Um, yeah, that, that, that's one of the reasons why I want my dad on the, on the interview. We, we do a lot of these together uh, because he's a little bit more politically liberal than I am. I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, right of center. He's a bit left of center. He's a non-Christian Jew. I became a, a Bible thump and born again Christian about 20 years ago. So our differences um, illustrate where what could be great divides, uh, but there's a, a rich relationship there. So I'm glad he was able yeah. to jump in on us. I just have a couple, couple more questions, and then if if you want to ask me, it's uh, it's um, it's your platform too. So um, I heard you say on another podcast. Uh, by the way, big plug for the podcast. Why God? Why the team there does a great job and are trying to achieve many of the same things we're doing here. Um, dealing with big, important questions. Uh, well, hopefully having some fun in the process. So why God, why? It was uh, really fun to hear you on that. I heard you say on that podcast a week or so ago prior to the, oh, excuse me, about a week or so prior to the election that you were hoping for a decisive election and that you were most concerned about a close one. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, it seems like even though the electoral college numbers are going to look similar to 2016, yeah, which you characterize as a decisive victory, it just feels a lot more like a close election than a decisive one. Yeah. How concerned are you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, uh, a lot of my conservative friends say that there's not gonna be any riots. So, so maybe I shouldn't be so scared. I just yeah. felt like in a close election that it was going to, you know, when people feel like they're gypped, uh, that you have more of a chance for violence. Mm. Uh, We'll see what happens once things get certified. Because right now there's still some hope from all the protests, the lawsuits. But we'll see what happens. Look, I hope I'm wrong. You know, and I, I, I will, you know, uh, say, you're right. Y'all did not riot. Uh, or people like, I mean, I, my friends probably weren't going out there torches, but people like you weren't rioting. But I think we have to wait until after, after, uh, all the lawsuits. Now, I don't think the lawsuits are going to change. You know, we may find some fraud. I'm, I'm we probably are going to find some fraud. Yeah. Uh, by the way, they're going to change the actual outcome. I think that there's too many states in which he's he's too far behind, even though it's close, but it's far enough. It's not less than a thousand. Yeah. Uh, that uh, that I don't think it's going to happen. What if it did happen? What if somehow he found the votes and he and he and put and got Pennsylvania and Arizona and Georgia 
uh, I don't know if that'd be enough, but that put them on the top. You know, yeah. then the disappointment the other way would be tremendous. Right. So, uh, so yeah, but I think it's going to happen. I think, you know, just being, being very practical, this is not why I want this, just what the numbers say. And I go with what the numbers say. Numbers say that he's lost his election. So, uh, so, so we'll see what happens and, and I'll be happy to be wrong. Yeah. Uh, I will say that as someone who is neither a Republican or a Democrat, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy if the Republicans keep the Senate. I hope they do. I'll be pulling for the two Georgia uh, Senate re, uh, Republicans because that will, that, I think that'll make Biden a better president. Yeah. I honestly do. I think that now he has to negotiate with the Republicans. Whereas, and this was the problem Obama had. His first two years, he didn't have to negotiate with Republicans. Yeah. And I think he, over, he overreached. So maybe he'll make Biden a better president. You know, it, it seems like you and I agree on a lot of that. I, I, I'm in favor of allowing the recounts to happen. Not, not that we means. have a choice, but just let them happen. Um, see the process, let the process play itself out. Um, you know, a lot of the lawsuits are just going to get tossed out as frivolous, but I don't know, a couple of them might stick. And yeah, um, but I, I think you're right. I think even in the closest states, uh, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, they're still in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. Yeah, they are. I think is Arizona the closest about thirteen thousand. Yeah, I haven't seen the latest numbers, but yeah, you know, I think Trump's victories was was narrower. Yeah, than these, and I knew Trump's victories was not going to be overturned. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you so, might find a few hundred here and there. But, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I think the lawsuit in Pennsylvania sounds like it has really good merit. That the legislator tried, that the, uh, that the, uh, if I remember correctly, I'm not a lawyer, that the uh, courts overturned the legislature in, in, in a way that the legislature clearly has jurisdiction. Okay. Now, that's not going to give them the state, but I can see how that lawsuit could go forward and they win that one and they get a few more votes, but. Yeah, he's not going to win Pennsylvania. Do you know how many votes are in question in that one? I'm not sure. I think it's all the votes that came after a certain date. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, if if it doesn't, have, if it's not postmarked by election day, um, well, it's, it's not the postmarking. It's just that the way I understand it, the the Pennsylvania legislature passed a rule saying if your vote isn't there by election day, it doesn't count. Oh, I see. The judge overturned that, but the but the Pennsylvania Constitution, the way I understand it, says no. The legislature has the power to do that. Oh, so that, that's it, that's an interesting discrepancy because the current Supreme Court, um, their tendency is to defer to states' decisions. But in this case, yeah. there's a split between the courts in that state and the legislature in that state. It'd be interesting to see which way. Yeah. On that I way. mean, I don't know. To me, they have a good. I think that's a good case. Yeah. Because yeah. that's you know directly in the statutes. If, if I understand this correctly. And so I can see that now. I don't know if it changes Pennsylvania. I think yeah. isn't he up like about thirty thousand now or something like that? I think it's forty five, and it's and it's yeah. it's rising. So the question is, yeah. So one. I don't think it changes that. But you know, look, we should find out whether or not there is fraud here because if there is, we maybe this election doesn't matter. But do we want to wait until this election where it really does matter and the fraud probably oh, yeah. helps them to win? Yeah. I mean, can you imagine what will happen then? Oh man! So we should do it now when it won't overturn. We should really investigate it now when it won't overturn. Right, right. Yeah, it's. It, I, I don't think that there's enough votes to, even if every single one of those votes ended up being a Trump vote or mm -hmm. taken away from the Biden vote, it's not enough to overturn that um, that state. 
Uh, I don't think it, I don't think it is either. Speaking of numbers, I was curious. Are, are you as much of a geek for the polls as as I've been over the last four or five years? I was less so this time, but it was really a big time four years ago. Okay. And and the midterms. For some reason, I just wasn't as much into them. But yeah, the pollsters got clobbered. Yes. And you know, the funny thing is, is that a lot of the calls were right, but you don't judge polls on the calls. You judge polls on right, yeah. the range. Well, I mean, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. All right, the best example is Collins in Maine. I saw oh, someone yeah. show this. Collins won Maine by about nine points. There was not a single poll yeah. that had her winning. There's one that had her only losing by one or two points. Yeah, two points. So yeah. now we have what we call margin of error. Right. You know, margin of error, you know, you're nine points off, but you could be nine points off the other way. Yeah. So you literally have a 20, about 18, 20 point margin of error on the best poll in in Maine. How can, how can, how can you have any trust in a poll with a 20 point margin of error? You, you know, what was really confounding to me is that you look at states that should be fairly similar and mm. polls, for example, for Minnesota were in a pretty close range with where it ended up. Whereas Wisconsin, even though Biden won Wisconsin, they were pretty far off. They were like five, yeah, six points off. I didn't yeah. get how states that were so close together and so similar population-wise that the polls could be so different. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I don't I don't know either. Unless somehow uh, you know, what they would call the shy Trump supporter is more common in Wisconsin than in Minnesota. That that's a possibility. I don't know I don't, why it would be that way. But I don't buy the shy Trump voter. I don't <laughs> Yeah. Have you met a Trump supporter? They ain't shy. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think there's something to this, though. Well, I do, but it's a different. What we call social desirability. Yeah, yeah. You have loud Trump supporters. Yes, believe me, you got loud Trump supporters. Well, my my partner will vote for Trump, but they won't tell you they vote for Trump. My partner and and one of my best friends, uh, he he pretends to be a big Trump supporter because I think he gets a kick out of getting a rise out of yeah. folks. So. This is the shy Trump voter. He ain't shy. But if he got somebody on the phone that was polling him, um, mm. I think just for kicks, he'd pretend that he was the biggest Biden supporter ever. Mm. You know, I, he just he'd just get a kick out of it, but not because he's shy, but because, yeah. you know, he likes stirring a little bit of trouble. <laughs> so. That might happen. Uh, I'm not seeing I'm not heard that happen a lot. But social desirability. Yeah. Uh, the fact that people will not tell you something that's true because they won't look good. That's that. That's a common problem when it comes to polling. Yeah. W- one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was um, the American Solidarity Party. Yes. You have a really nuanced, well-reasoned point of view about, you know, voting. I, I won't even call it a third party. I just vote yeah. voting for sure. a minor party. Um, t- tell us about American Solidarity Party and tell us how you arrived at that that conclusion that this, this was the right way to vote for you. Yeah, but really it, it happened in 2016. Uh, I could not vote for Clinton, even though Trump was, was the Republican candidate. Uh, and once I concluded I could not vote for Tr- Clinton, I, I thought, well, what am I gonna do? And so I started looking for some third parties. And uh, I had a friend, a Facebook friend, who told me about the American Solidarity Party. And when I read their platform, I'm like, yeah, I agree with 80 to 90% of this. I don't agree with 89% with anything. <laughs> this is my this is my party. Yeah. So I voted for them. And you know, I had people tell me you're gonna throw away your vote. Da, 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 da. But I thought about it more about it. like, you know what? First I live in Texas. So Trump's winning Texas. Yeah. But even if I didn't, you know, I add one more vote to Trump 
or Clinton or Biden. Well, I have one more vote to bear solidarity party. Uh, it doesn't take that many votes for that to start having an impact. Because the purpose of third party is not to win. I mean, yeah. look, if our, if Brian Carroll won, I'd, I'd probably be drunk right now. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I probably, you know, I'd be celebrating, what? You know, but uh, purpose though is for people to co-opt you, to take your ideas, and put it in the big. And so if we get big enough, I want us to be co-opted. I want someone to come, one or two parties to come and say, you know, we're gonna be so much like you all, you all that you don't need to exist any longer. And I say, mm. okay, fine. I'll vote for you then. Uh, my understanding is that in 2016, we had 6,000. And the last count that I saw, we had like over 20,000 uh, votes. Wow. And that's not the final tally. So we're already three times bigger than we were in 2016. Uh, I would also say that I remember about 10 years ago, people were talking about the, uh, the socially progressive, physically conservative voter, you know, the yeah. libertarian voter. And then that was the person that, that, was, that was in the middle, that the Democrats wanted to get uh, for their socially progressiveness and Republicans want to get for their physical conservativeness. <clears throat> I've actually seen some data that shows that that person is not that common. More common is the socially conservative, physically progressive person, which is what American Solidarity Party kind of is. Oh, that's interesting. So we really have potential to, to grow. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there who do not like abortion, like religious freedom, uncomfortable with some of the sexuality changes. But on the other hand, they want a government to, to you know, they want a welfare state that helps people out. They, they want to take care of refugees at the border. They want, you know, uh, you know, a healthcare system that the government, if not single payer, at least is a big player in it. Yeah. They want to protect workers. They want, they want the, the progressive economic angle as well. So we, we really have a potential to grow if we do it right. Whether we do or not, who knows? But I think there's a lot of people who their, their ideals fit ours. Yeah. Interesting stuff. American Solidarity Party. Uh, did, did you have any questions for me? I really appreciate, you know, you indulging us, but did you have any questions for me? You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know more about me than I about you. Uh, so, I mean, I guess, how do you feel about the outcome last Tuesday? You and I are very much on the same page. I am really, it seems to me that America spoke that there were a lot of people who showed up and did not want Trump back, but they still were conservative enough to vote for a lot of Republicans in the House and a lot of Republicans in the Senate. I like that result. You know, maybe it's because I'm naive and optimistic, but McConnell and Biden have known each other for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be, again, I might be wrong about it. I might be reading it completely the wrong way, but I think it's going to be more realistic for Biden to work with McConnell mm -hmm. than it would be for him to collaborate as much with the AOC wing of the house. And I kind of like that. So I, I am also grateful that there, there, it was a largely peaceful election day. Um, yeah. It's been, you know, there, and listen, there've been protests of course, and there's been a lot of heated rhetoric online and in the media, uh, but um, you know, other than, I heard one story about a couple of guys with handguns going to a polling place or something like that, that were intercepted. Other than that, I, 
you know, there've been folks with signs, you, you know, doing the protest thing. And I, I think that's, um, I think that's a good thing. So I, I'm pretty happy about the result. Yeah. I, I am not a, I, I mean, anybody who knows me for longer than two minutes knows I'm not a, a Trump supporter, but for me, it, it, it really is biblical reading that collection of essays. Um, it, they were it, scripturally, I had come across a lot of the references from the various um, academics and authors in that collection. Um, but it, really looking through the prism of scripture, I could not bring myself to support it. Even if there were, you know, some policies that ended up being policies that aligned with ones that I would support, um, I can't, I couldn't get past the words, yeah. actions, and character of Donald John Trump. So, yeah. 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 For me, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Clinton was around and, yeah. and my sort of friend said, this guy does not have the care to be president. You know what? They were right. Yeah. They absolutely. were right. You know? And, and I said, yeah, this, you know, what you've done, you shouldn't be president. They're right then. They're just not right now. Right. You know, uh, you know some of them are obviously like David French or something like that, but. Oh, uh, he's one of my favorites. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think, Within, within reason, I'm not saying that the person has to be a boy scout or anything like that, but within reason, character does matter. Yeah. Uh, and as well as just treating people decently. Uh, you know, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, are there things Trump, I mean, honestly, beyond, uh, beyond some of the obvious things, he's been a dove as far as foreign policy. I, I like that. Yeah. He's probably more a dove than Biden will be, but the, uh, the negatives far outweigh the positives. <laughs> uh, and what it does to our culture, the impact that it has yes, on yeah. our culture, kind of creating- Here, a... Here's something that I'll just kind of throw out there. It's just something about, I think both the Democrats and Republicans can learn from last Tuesday. You know, I think Republicans can hopefully, I, I'm not optimistic that, this, <laughs> that they will. That was my I'm question, do you think they, they will? <laughs> Because the Democrats did not learn four years ago, so I'm not optimistic to learn today. I'm not optimistic to learn Republicans. But the Republicans learned, look, y'all could have won the presidency. If you had any decent person up there, Biden was not a powerhouse of a candidate. You could have steamrolled him. Yeah. Nominate someone. If Trump tries to run in 2024, kick everyone out but one person, nominate that person, and beat him down. Yeah. We do not need, we do not need more Trump. So I hope they're going to learn that lesson. Democrats need to learn, look, you know, shut your mouth about packing courts, about doing this crazy sort of stuff. Uh, you know, the AOC of the party, we have a party people, Americans generally do not want that. Right. I think Americans slap them down for that. Oh, man. We don't like Trump, but we're not giving you all power. Uh, and now they both could learn, but will either of them learn? You know, and also Democrats... Treat people who disagree with respect. You know, deplorables, that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that people know that you don't respect them. Yeah. You know, you, mean, you can disagree with people about, and, and still respect them. You and your father are a great example of that. Uh, treat people who you disagree with respect. And, you know, they, you know, if you're not, then don't be surprised they don't vote for you. Right. Right. So they could, they could learn, will they, Corey? <laughs> we both know the answer to that. We shall see. I think some some are waking up though. Some are waking up because look, I hope so. It's seventy million plus votes. You know, like I mean, not every one of the. What's that? It wasn't. 
Didn't he get more votes than Clinton did four years ago, even Obama? I think, yeah, he, uh, I think Trump got more votes than anyone in history except for Joe Biden. Except for Biden. Yeah, that's right. Because there was a bigger turnout than this election than yeah. any other election. But uh, yeah, not every one of those thing, people who voted for Trump is a deplorable, is a racist, no, no. is a this or a that. There's a lot of people who just arrived at their conclusion. You know, that, that's what I'm saying is you can't jump to conclusions about a whole a whole person, about their entire character, just based on a vote. They might have logic behind it. And it's up to a us. A lot of people voted for Trump because they were afraid, afraid of the Democrats. They were afraid of defunding. That. A lot of people were afraid of the Democrats. And, yeah. and I can't blame them. I disagree with their conclusion. OK. Yeah. I don't disagree with the fact that they were afraid of the Democrats because the Democrats themselves. Right. We're talking about how they're going to go after this group and that group and stuff like that. I mean, come on, folks. Well, I, I will say this. The reason that I end up feeling a lot more comfortable about my vote for Biden, and, and I voted for Republicans in the past. I, in this election, I voted for a lot of Republicans, especially at the state yeah. and local level. But I ended up because I saw a convention where AOC, <clears throat> excuse me, AOC got her 30 seconds. But John Kasich and Meg Whitman and Christine yeah. Todd Whitman and <clears throat> Colin Powell all got, you know, several times more each. Than, than, yeah. than AOC. Um, so I, and, and I also saw that some of the things that concerned me the most, I mentioned defund the police, Biden came out right away and said, no, 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 that's not, that's not viable. Yeah. That's yeah. not productive. Um, so there, there are certain signals for me. And listen, he doesn't represent, you know, everything that, that um, I would want politically, uh, but, but no politician does to your point, you know, yeah. I'm going to have to take a long, hard look at American solidarity party, but um you know, no, no politician does, but right. uh, this this time around, I felt a lot more comfortable voting, you know, against Donald Trump and with Biden much more so than I, not that I didn't want to vote against Trump last time, but I, I wasn't as at home. I wasn't right. as, as comfortable voting for uh, Hillary Clinton, but um, that's, uh, that's f for a whole other conversation, I guess. Right. Yeah. So. George, this was a real treat, man. I, I am just honored that that you took the time and, um, you know, you, you visited with us today. And I, I learned a lot. I feel like I have a lot more reading material to to uh, catch up on now. So, well, pleasure having me. Pleasure being here. And uh, yeah, this was fun. And uh, give your best to your father. I will. I will. And uh, I, I get to Texas every once in a while. In fact, I was just in Austin about a week and a half ago. So if I'm in that neck of the woods, I, I might, especially if we get beyond this thing. I might yeah. want to hit you up and, and get, get a coffee or a beer or something. Let me go. Just know that Austin's like about four or five hours away from me. No, I usually, I, so the drive that I did was Austin to Dallas to Tulsa. Okay. So I, I usually do a, a good bit of driving right, cool, in that. Cool. Dallas, woods. Yeah. We'll do Dallas. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So All right. it's great to get to know you. Let's not be a stranger. Okay. All right. God bless. Thanks. You too, man. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, Please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>